0: Morning, we start uh, on a new book on Malachi. And as I generally do when we go into a new book, it's, it's going to be a bit of a backstory, a bit of an understanding of what was happening at the time, a little bit of a recap, a historical understanding of it. But before I get into that, I just want to share a few things. And it might sound like rambling, but bear with me. I ramble every Sunday anyway. So, um, Some of you are going to be like, how's this any different from any other time? Um, But, you know, for us, for me, uh, it's been fascinating. At the end of last week's sermon, I had quite a number of really good conversations with people about, you know, some of the topics that came up at the end of last week's sermon. And it wasn't just from people within our church. Fascinatingly, people who aren't part of our church who had either been pointed to it or had listened to the sermon, which also then stimulated conversation with people in our community about it, and a lot, you know, kind of revolved around, you know, what, what does it really mean to be a Christian? Like, what does it really mean to be a follower of Christ? And some of the challenges that we've faced daily um, from things around us, and, and some of the things that came out of this conversation was, you know, I, I shared a little bit about my fascination with some Christians, or, or so-called Christians, who love end times, You know, just obsessed with them times. They want to see the world end. And I I had to remind people that actually we believe in a God that so loved the world, he didn't send his son to condemn it, but to save it. And that the other one, the one we call Satan, which is actually an adjective, it's not a name, should be the Satan, he wants to destroy the world. So if you're fascinated with the end of the world, whose mind are you more aligning to? And that sparked quite a number of conversations. And we took that a little bit further and we started talking about some other things. And another thing that popped up was conspiracy theories. And I said, I'm fascinated that we Christians have become obsessed with conspiracy theories. Because they breed fear. Distrust. And, you know, God tried to deal with that with these people by actually putting a law out. One of the Ten Commandments specifically speaks to this. And then I'll remind people, I said, God is a God of truth. The Satan is a God of mischief and disbelief and lacking of trust and lies. So how is it, whose mind are you aligning yourself to? And then I said, it's a fascination with politics as well. How we've become so politically active without realising that politics, at its core, is all about power. And we believe in a God who gave up all power to reach us. And we have the Satan who wants all power to control us. So whose mind are you aligning yourself to? Now, it's very airy, it's, I'm not going deep into theology, I mean, there's nothing wrong with politics per se, but sometimes the way we approach it, actually, most of the times we approach it, it's pretty much got a question where you're coming from. Our view of end times, the way we're approaching it. And so all these things came to the conclusion, what we came to in the end was this talk around, well, what does it mean? To be a Christian. And my response to that was: well, my mandate here at Hutt City Baptist Church is to try and unpack the Bible in a way that you can then explore God's intention for us. So that we may be shaped more like Him and less like ourselves. So when I do a lot of these backstories, a lot of these context talks around history. You know, it's not just a fascination with history. It's a way of showing you that humanity is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. That humanity faced the same problems, the same issues, differently back then as we do today. One of the questions I got thrown back at me was, oh, but today we've got nuclear bombs and we can, you know, I'm like, yeah, yeah but you understand that for all of humanity, we suffered existential threat. For you as an individual, if the Mongols appeared at your front gate, that's no different to an atomic bomb about to land on you. Your very life was in danger. A famine hit the land and there's no rain. That's an existential threat. You'll have no food. While the circumstances may be different for us. We're still the same. And that's the power of the Bible. And that's why it's so important to put it into context and understand that there will always be wars and rumours of wars. There will always be crazy people trying to take power. There will always be uncertainty about what tomorrow may bring. But the power, the power that lies in Jesus Christ is the hope that we have. And yes, the world will end one day and Jesus will return one day. But I still love the world because that is what God's heart all about. Exactly. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Malachi is a fascinating book, and I'm going to get into it very quickly because I've only got two weeks on it, which doesn't give it justice. But it talks to these fundamental issues about who are you? And who is it that you're following? Who is this God in your life? And how much are you honouring him through the way you act, be, and exist? Now, like I said, we're going to take a big step back, about 3,000 years' step back. We're going to go to this time period, 1120 BC, the promised land. This is about the time, about the time. We don't actually know for certain. But it's about the time that Israel divides up the whole promised land into the various tribes. Now, if you want to bring into modern day Today, there is one part of this whole land that's not theirs. Can anyone see that? Let's be political this morning. The Gaza Strip, you notice that? It's never been theirs. Never in the history of Israel. And even when they divided up the land, it was never theirs. I think God knew that's going to be a hot spot. 3,000 years later, they're still fighting over it. The people that used to be there don't exist anymore, the Philistines, they're gone. The problems still exist. Anyway, 1120, the promised land, all divided up. And it goes really well. A couple of good, really good kings, David, Solomon. But by the time Solomon dies, which is about 930 BC, the Israelites start fighting amongst each other like good brothers, and they divide off the land. To the north, the 10 tribes, the kingdom of Israel. To the south, the two tribes, Judah and Simeon. Simeon has just kind of been absorbed into Judah. And they kind of run their own thing. Judah have their own kingdom. Israel do their own thing. Up until around about 722 BC, where the Assyrians come down from the north, destroy Israel. The 10 tribes are taken into captivity. We never see or hear from them again. All that's left is this little, little kingdom of Judah. Fascinating thing about Judah is, it's not part of any major trade route. When Pompey the Great, the Roman general, came to uh, conquer Jerusalem, a lot of his generals around him said, why are you going to this forgotten little place? There's no trade routes around it. What's the point? It's a little bit of nothing in the middle of nowhere. So 722 BC, the Assyrians destroy, um, destroy Israel, but then they themselves, by 612 BC, are destroyed completely. We talked a little bit about that when we did Jonah last week. And all that's left is this little kingdom of Judah. The Assyrians were destroyed by a collective armies of the Medes and the Babylonians. And so the Babylonians took charge. And again, these guys are just holding out they're this little dot on a map. But then in 586 BC, Babylon completely destroys Judah. Gone. Wipes it. The temple, Solomon's temple destroyed. The walls destroyed. And they're taken into captivity. By about 538 BC, the first exiles return. The Persian uh, Empire at this point is starting to grow. They defeat the Babylonians. And they allow some of the Jews to go back, and they're called Jews because they're from Judah. There was a a very big debate when they were setting up the state of Israel whether to call it Judah again or call it Israel because technically it's Judah. But there is a dream in Israel that the 10 tribes will be found and they'll all be reunited back in the land that God had called them to. So they wanted to be forward-looking and call it Israel. The exiles return, and then by about the time period of this book that we're about to get into, 4.45, it coincides with the time when Nehemiah is back in town from uh, Babylon, and he's got his own book talking about building the walls and dealing with Sambalat and all those crazy people that didn't want him doing that wall. At the same period of time, we have this guy. Malachi, so it's about 445 BC, the Peloponnesian War has been fighting and a hundred years time we'll see Alexander the Great come to power. It's a really pivotal time of history and it's the last time we hear from anybody in the Old Testament. This is the last book, the very last book, which is interesting because most of us in this room would think Malachi is the name of the prophet of this book, but it's not. Malachi is not actually a name. Malachi comes from the word malakim, which means angels, messengers. And Malachi means angelic message or a message from the angels. Which is fascinating when you think about it. The last book of the Old Testament, we get an angelic message. Now, if they actually named it that way, I think more people would read it, right? You think you read Malachi and you think, oh, it's one of those books. Right? But when you think of it as being an angelic message, you're like, ooh. This is kind of cool. And it is. It's actually quite a fascinating book. How many people have read Malachi, by the way, without having to go through the whole year Bible thing, actually just sit down and really read it? It's not very much a book that most of us tend to just jump into. But it's interesting because it, it works on this kind of a discourse between God and the people. So God will say something, the people respond, and then God will respond to how the people respond. And there's about seven of these discourses that go on. This morning, we're gonna focus on just the one, okay? This one, that starts in Malachi chapter one, going from verses two to three. God said, I love you. You, the people, replied, really? How have you loved us? And then God returns a reply. He goes, look at history, God said. Look at how differently I treated you, Jacob, from Esau, I loved Jacob and hated Esau. I reduced pretentious Esau to a molehill, turned this whole country into a ghost town. That's how much I loved you. Woo! feel bad for Esau, but don't worry, he'll have his revenge later on. And unfortunately, he will. Anyone know the story? Anyone know where Herod the Great comes from? From Edom. Edom are the people of Esau. Sooner or later, Esau will trump his brother. But that's another story. God is saying to him, I love you this much. What he's saying is basically this I chose you because I love you, but do you love me? Oh, that's challenging. I challenge myself this question quite regularly. Oh, I love you, God. And then the question pops into my mind, and the question is, do I really? Like, do I really love him? I had a great day yesterday. I was so peopled out, I didn't want anyone around me. I had a massive headache that I couldn't get rid of. And the one person I wanted to be around was right next to me the whole day. My wife. It was lovely. Not for her, I don't think. (laughs) Really, I I woke up, I saw a couple of emails, I got this massive headache, and I thought, I'm just going to chill, I'm going to go sit in the shower for a little while, and you know, just every once in a while you get these headaches. And then I I just thought, oh, I've got to work on the sermon, I'll put that aside. But I spent the day with her, and we really don't have anything to tell you or show you for what we did. Apart from dinner that was awesome. Hey, babe, I thought so. We sat outside afterwards, nagged each other a little bit, enjoyed the cold air that was blowing. And that's what I start to compare myself when I think of God. Would I do that with God? And my answer sometimes, most of the times, is no. If I take out my time during the day with God, it's going to be the 10 minutes in the morning or the 15 minutes before I go to bed or maybe the odd time I go for a walk and talk to Him. But if my relationship with Monica was based on the way I love God, we wouldn't last long. Because love is selfless, love is sacrificial. Love is making time. Everything we struggle with in our relationship with our partners or with our kids or with our friends, it's the same in our relationship with God. And the Israelites were having this problem. The Jews were having this problem. Here's God talking about it. He says, why doesn't one of you just shut the temple doors and lock them? Then none of you can get in and play at religion with this silly, empty-headed worship. I am not pleased. I am not pleased. And I don't want any more of this so-called worship. Sounds like a fight I have with my wife sometimes. I mean, it's harsh. When you get to the words of this, he's not happy. He's not feeling the love. He is turning to Israel, to the Jews, and saying, you know what, I'd, I'd rather there not be a temple at all. I'd rather you don't come to church. St- stay out. Because I'm kind of tired of you telling me you love me, but you know, what sacrifice really is that for you to be here? What sacrifice are you doing to be with me? Where do I stand in your relationships? Where in the world do I fit in your world? Psalm 44 verse 5 says, Offer sacrifices in the right spirit and trust the Lord. I would unpack that a little bit more by saying it doesn't mean you have to be perfect. It doesn't mean you have to be all well-dressed and ironed up and clean-shaven and whatever the case may be. When the Hebrew right word is used, it means be honest, be real, be you. And the challenge, I would say, is stop talking to God with flowery language Stop following rituals. Stop following to be real with him. This morning I wanted to pray, but I didn't feel comfortable doing it because I don't always feel comfortable being real. And yet this morning, as I'm up here welcoming people up, three people, I asked them, how you doing? Eh, they well You know, me, I'm all, eh, hey, so good to see you. High five, hugs. And, and a couple of, three people, How you doing? And they just kind of, uh, I'm not good. And part of me went, yes. Yes. One of them burst into tears. Bring your offerings to the Lord. They may be broken. They may be hurting. Bring them. As real as you can. The prayer I wanted to pray was, I would rather be home right now, God. I'd rather be back in my bed. I'm tired. I don't know why, and I'm sorry. I really am, because I don't want to be this way. I want to be excited. Please, Lord, give me your excitement. Renew my heart. I get why David felt like this why so many of the Psalms sound like this. I get it. And if more of us could be this real, just I don't know what tomorrow's going to look like. The messes that are in my life are basically caused by myself. I've got no one else to blame but me. And I don't know who to turn to. These are the prayers... This is what God wants. You don't need to be perfect. That's not what right means here. He wants us to be honest and real. 2 Samuel 24. This is a story about David. And he's going to want to purchase a, a, an altar thing so that he can sacrifice to the Lord. And he goes to Arano, who's... Who's got this thing? He says, "Why has my Lord the king come to his servant? I want to buy your threshing for?" David answered, So I can build an altar to the Lord, that the plague on the people may be stopped. I'm worried about my people. I don't know how to stop this. I need to get before the Lord. And Aaron said to David. Let my lord, the king, take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering. Here are the threshing sledges and the ox yokes for the wood. Your Majesty, arono gives you all of the king. And also said to him, May the Lord your servant, um, the Lord your God, accept you. But the king replied, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. That cost me nothing. Love costs everything. Love costs every bit of you. Whether it's stressing for your kids, worried about your next meal or how you pay bills or whether you're going to have a job or not or or you name it. Hand it to God. That is your sacrifice. Hand it. It's your offering. God goes on, he says, instead of honouring me, you profane me. You profane me when you say worship is not important and what we bring to worship of is of no account. And when you say I'm bored, this doesn't do anything for me. You act so superior, sticking your nose in the air. Act superior to me, your God. And when you do offer something to me, it's a hand-me-down or broken or useless. Do you think I'm going to accept it? This is God speaking to you. I know what's inside of you. I know where you're at. Don't hide it from me. Don't pretend. Don't come to me with some fanciful words that you use to the people around you. I know you. I am your God. I used to teach when I was a youth pastor to the kids. I'd I'd scare them by telling them, (laughs) where do you think God is right now? And they'd all say, oh, he's here, obviously, yeah. Where do you think he is when you're in the shower? Uh, He's there too, isn't he? Yeah, he's everywhere. So when you're on your own and you think no one's around, where do you think God is? There is nothing you can hide from him. You imagine being that transparent to the people around you. How does that feel? It is scary, eh? I don't want anyone looking at me while I'm in the shower. And I don't think you guys want to be seeing me in the shower either. (laughs) Jeez, that's nothing. Wait till you see what's really inside. That's scarier. You know you. And there's only one other being that knows you as well as you do. That's God. I love you, says the Lord, so much. But do you love me? What's coming around the corner after Malachi? What's next in the biblical list? Matthew. First gospel of the New Testament. What is that about? What did God give up for us? Everything. Everything. Um, I was talking with Sharon. She's not not here today. And we were talking about a book that that she started reading, which happens to be the same book I've just started reading. And she messaged me and said, what is this book about? It's called Dominion by Tom Holland. It's a new book that's just come out. And I told her, hey, read this other book by Tom Holland because it's more of a story like But And I, I didn't know. I started reading Dominion, and I'm totally hooked into it now. right? And it, and it just talks. It's a really fascinating academic from a secular point of view showing how Christianity grew and explaining how Christianity grew and why it grew at a time when there were other bigger empires, so-called bigger gods, more established belief systems around And yet Christianity grew. And he's saying, simply put, it's irresistible, this message, because it's so real. And I'm laughing while I'm reading the book. So Tom, what do you think about becoming a Christian yourself if it's that real? If it's that life-changing and you're looking at it from an academic, it's true. What did God give up for us? This was nothing that the gods of the time ever did. There was no personal relationship with the gods. They were some far-off entity and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, 5,000 years, this belief that just can't go away. And yet all the gods of the Old Testament have disappeared in the dust because this is so real that God loves us so much that he would give everything up for us. How much are we willing to give up for him? A lot of people who, pastors, in particular teachers, teach Malachi, they always talk about tithing. Rebuke them next time you hear them say that, because this book is not about tithing. It's not the way the Jews would have read it. It's about commitment and love, and how real are you? Jesus brings it up later on with a widow's mind. He says, that's real love right there. She's given everything Everything she's got, she's giving. It's not a quantity. It's who you are. And some of you are thinking, oh, did I come to church for this? My mandate is to just open the Bible and show you God's heart and challenge you to grow more like him for yourselves and for those around you. We don't need politics to change people. We don't need laws or rules to change people. Share the love of Christ. That will change everybody. Be the love of Christ. That will change everybody. That will change everybody. When I became a Christian... I was with Monica and her brother, and her brother, a lovely guy, a Marine, we were in Washington, D.C., and he was trying to pound the Bible into me. And we had arguments day in, day out while playing Monopoly, which didn't help. And Monica can tell you this I couldn't stand it. These Christians are trying to pound me with this. Like, Get out of here. And then Monica comes to me at the end of it all I'm going back to Australia. I don't want anything to do with these people. And she tells me, Come to church. Oh, gosh, I'm having a problem with one of you people. You want to put me in a room with all of you? This is crazy. I do want to do it. And she just gave me that look, and you're like, oh, why do I have to love this woman? So I went. And the worship was weird to me, as it should be. If you don't love God, worship is weird. It's like kids when they see their parents in love. It's weird. Right? Then the pastor came up, it was a Scottish bloke, which was a relief. I'd been hearing Americans for two weeks straight. It's nice to hear a different accent. And he started telling me about the love of God, that he is my father. My father had died just a few years before. To know that I was loved. I don't know what hit me, but boy, did the Holy Spirit hit me had nothing to do with logic. It just had to do with the fact that I was loved. That I was loved. And frankly, feeling that love, I would give everything for it. And now that I've gotten old and cynical and all of that, I sometimes forget about that love. But I have to be reminded. We all have to be reminded. And especially in the last book of the Old Testament, there's something around the corner and that is just a glimpse of what's to come, of how great this love is. And we see it every day with this cross, whether it's green, blue, red, whatever colour we put it up on a Sunday, it's a symbol of God's love for us, whole and total. So I challenge you this week, as you go out, every step is a sacrifice sometimes. Sometimes you don't want to be here, Sometimes being curled up in bed is a good thing. But remember, you are loved. And God is challenging you to share that love and to show him who you really are. It's okay not to come with a smile on a Sunday. It's okay to come here with tears. It's okay to come here and not want to be here. That's real worship. Amen? Ask oh, the music to come up. Father God, there are some of us here that don't want to be here. I know that. I'm one of them. I've been challenged by it. I know some of us are here and we're hurting. And some of us are here who just don't know what to do. But we are here because we love you, God. We are your children Forgive us when we leverage that love at times or when we even forget you, Lord. Forgive us, Father, that sometimes our offering is fake and not real. We're carried by whatever's going on around us, not wanting people to know how we really are, maybe even not wanting you to know how we really are. Forgive us, Lord. But I know when I am reminded how much you love me. That's humbling, Lord. I pray that may be for all of us. That we may offer ourselves to you, Lord. All of us, good, bad, the ugly. We may, may we be your people, Lord. So that the world may know that you are God. Bless us, Lord, I pray. And thank you.